I'm Michaela Pockner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Scott Day is always looking for new crops to grow and new methods to try on his approximately 1,600 acres in the Canadian province of Manitoba. From canola to soybeans to sunflowers to lentils, this no-till innovator has been experimenting with what works for decades and sharing his lessons learned with farmers around the world. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Day about no-tilling in the harsh climate of Canada's prairies and how diverse crop choices have become a legacy of no-till on his farm. Day also shares his top piece of advice for growers considering making the switch to no-till and what's on his radar as Director of Agronomy at Fall Line Capital, the farm and farm technology investment company. Scott, tell me where you are in Manitoba. You're pretty close to the U.S. border, aren't you? Well, we're only about 25, 30 kilometers from the U.S. border from North Dakota and about 50, 60 kilometers from Saskatchewan. So I'm okay. straight straight north of Minot, North Dakota, about an hour and a half. My family's been in the area for about 120 since since agriculture started here in southwest Manitoba. Uh, you went off to school, then came back home? Yeah, I, I went to university, and then I actually traveled for a couple of years working on farms in Australia and Ireland, oh, and then okay. I came home, and, uh, you know, that was a great experience, and I came home not sure what I was going to do. Our farm was really quite small. It was a livestock operation, and uh, and I ended up buying a piece of land beside our farm and getting a job as an extension agent for the government on the same day. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I've had essentially two careers ever since I decided to focus on agriculture, and, and uh, that's why I still farm today, yet I've had uh, other jobs along the way. Yeah. So how many acres are you farming today? 
Well, it's just my father and I, and my father just turned 80 last week, and we farm 1,650 acres. We used mm -hmm. to farm a bit more than that and had a hog operation as well. But uh, my work keeps me very busy, and I travel a lot, and so we've kind of consolidated the farm to be a little over 1,600 acres, essentially in, a, in one block around our farmyard. Sure, right. So what crops are you growing up there? I think you got a real diversified rotation, don't you? <laughs> yeah, well, I was an extension agent and I managed a research farm looking at crop diversification. So I was always involved in no-till, but also looking at new farming methods and new crops to grow. And uh, I'd often try and implement that on our own farm. So we've we've grown sunflowers and marrow fat peas and lentils and flax and oats and variety of other things but now we've kind of settled on growing canola wheat malt barley uh, soybeans and dry beans i've had to keep my farming side of things relatively simple uh because of my other work commitments so i I probably would be growing corn and sunflowers and those crops, but they take so long and take me well into the time of year when I'm usually in the United States working. So I, I don't grow crops uh, specifically for what's best for the farm. I kind of grow crops that fit into my schedule a little bit. There you go. Soybean production in the U.S. is, I mean, North Dakota and South Dakota have really gotten on the soybean bandwagon in the last few years, and apparently you're making soybeans work up where you are too, hmm? Yeah, we've been very fortunate with soybeans. I was involved in kind of helping usher in the crop uh, along with a lot of us with the department and the industry. But, you know, 15 years ago, I think there was less than 10,000 acres of soybeans. And then we hit close to 2 million acres wow. in 2017. So that was a very rapid increase. And that had a variety of things. You had better harvesting equipment. You had better varieties. You had better crop protection products and so on. But ultimately, you know, we're able to access varieties that could mature in our climate. So I, I grow double zero soybeans, and last year I grew a triple zero soybean, mm -hmm. and they yielded quite well. The problem that soybeans are having in Western Canada is that they don't handle uh, lack of moisture in the last half of the season okay. when our crops like, you know, wheat and canola and barley and, and uh, those crops are maturing and getting ready for harvest that's when soybeans still need some rainfall and we haven't consistently got that so this year will be interesting with the drought as to how that will affect the soybean yields again you know the peak in soybean acres was a few years ago and lately that's kind of tailed off because uh, there's lots of areas where they just don't get enough moisture to grow a good soybean crop late in the season but so we uh, loved having that crop in the rotation yeah, yeah. What's it do for you in the rotation? Well, most of our canola is Liberty Link or, or even Clearfield. There is Roundup Ready canola that makes up a significant acreage, but for the most part, we don't have a lot of Roundup Ready crops in our rotation. So um, putting soybean in allows us to use glyphosate in a different way. Okay. And uh, we don't have widespread glyphosate resistance yet because we have had a lot of variable of options in the system, primarily because we had mostly Liberty Link canola rather than, uh, you know, exclusively glyphosate mm -hmm. canola. And being able to grow soybeans, you, you know, you plant them a little later, you're using a, a Roundup Ready system or an Extend to provide a different way of using herbicides in your rotation, and then you harvest them later as well. So they fit really well into your schedule, adds 
the right type of diversification to your rotation. So, you know, farmers like growing them. It's just uh, getting the yield and, and income compared to, say, growing another crop of canola has been a bit of a problem. You, you mentioned weed control and Roundup Ready and Liberty Link. Quackgrass was a big problem for you people before you were no-tilling, right? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that was kind of uh, one of the things I learned with the no-till group is that my grandfather had always been supportive of soil conservation, as had my father. Um, but, you know, you just didn't have the tools to, to go no-till back then. And so when you kind of went from full tillage to, like, conservation tillage or less tillage, you kind of had the worst of both worlds. Mm-hmm. where you had some of the weeds that were left from the tillage era and they were doing really well in the no-till. And one of those that was really a problem when you kind of half <laughs> made a half an effort towards no-till was quackgrass. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I remember those first few years of us transitioning to reduce tillage. We were almost going to give up because there was so much quackgrass. And, um, and with, you know, if you make one or two passes, you're just dragging the roots around the field. So you're spreading it around that way as much as seed. With no-till, stopping tilling and stop dragging the roots around. And then with glyphosate uh, being used in the fall and just being used judiciously, I can't point to a quackgrass spot on our farm anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's like a lot of things, you know. Yeah, if nature will adapt to whatever you're doing. And if you kind of just halfway move from one system to another, you end up probably having the worst of both worlds for a while. So this was my message to other farmers as an extension agent was, if you're going to try this, then, you know, do it. Don't go halfway and then blame one thing or the other because it's not working. It's because you will probably end up having uh, problems from both systems if you just go halfway. Mm-hmm. And when I mean halfway, like you were still cultivating prior to the drill or you were using aggressive tillage while seeding or that sort of thing. I thought it was interesting where you said you're basically using glyphosate or Roundup on soybeans, but not on your other crops because you're using uh, Liberty Link and Clearfield canola. You know, if you look at the numbers, there's probably the most canola is the Liberty Link. Mm-hmm. And in that region where corn is grown, grain corn is grown, and a lot of that corn is Roundup Ready. But our other crops that we grow, like wheat and barley and peas and lentils, and those crops are not uh, herbicide tolerant. Right. Uh, they're not genetically modified. So we have quite a few crops in our rotation that we have to use conventional weed control on. It was the canola that was the genetically modified crop that had herbicide tolerance. And Liberty, um, there was a couple of things. First of all, the, the varieties were, were quite good. They yielded very well. And then the Liberty was very effective in our climate. There's, I know the guys in Australia haven't had great success with Liberty and weed control there uh, as much as we've had. But Liberty just worked very well in our climate so that we had that option always in our rotation for most of us anyway. And uh, and so introducing a Roundup Ready crop like soybeans is actually adding variability to most of the farming systems here on the prairies. With the flex draper headers that we're using for peas already or, or lentils, you know, they're just a natural fit sure. for soybeans as well. So you, you're able to include soybeans in your farm without any modifications to any of your equipment, you know, which is certainly a different thing when it comes to corn. 
and we plant soybeans with our air seeders. The only problem is, is we have to up the seeding rate, so our seed costs are a little more than if we had a planter. But as far as the crop stand goes, it looks fine. So on these triple zero uh, soybeans, what kind of yield would you like, and how, how many days of a growing season do you have up there? The triple zeros got hailed, but they still yielded about 40 bushels the acre, which I thought was great, considering... Sure. Uh, it, it had held. The first year I grew soybeans with the double zeros, we had really good luck. They yielded about 50, 50 to 60 bushels to the acre. And you plant them about the end of the third week to the end last week of May, mm-hmm. and you harvest them the first of October. Sure. Um, we have a bit of an advantage with day length, but uh, uh, you know, it's not that much farther north, uh, so it, I, I don't think it's that's the extreme difference. Right. But it's a kind of an interesting experiment in that these fields are are you know truly virgin soybean fields. There's no disease, and there's even thought that the inoculant that you're um, putting with the seed is is more aggressive than what is. Uh, commonly found in the corn belt like in it it has an ability to produce more nitrogen than the native populations you find in established soybean areas mm-hmm. so that we have this benefit of having you know really clean fields when it comes to f- fresh soybean and you know maybe over time our yields will start to go down as root diseases and other things prevail and there is you know in the red river valley of manitoba some of the common disease issues that are plaguing soybean producers further south are starting to show up in a you know in the odd field here and there are you planting totally spring crops or do you have any winter seeded crops it's it's entirely spring crops we did have uh, maybe 10 years ago there was a a, a pretty big increase in winter wheat and uh, it just hasn't been consistent in providing you know, more income per acre than spring wheat. Winter wheat should yield more, but it doesn't always do that. And then it is not usually worth as much as spring wheat. We also have the problem of harvesting and seeding at the same time. Sure. (laughs) And uh, we have a pretty tight window there. So that's a bit of a issue. Where I am in Southwest Manitoba is where a lot of rye is produced, fall rye, that then goes to the U.S. to be used as uh, cover crop seed. And so the fall rye is planted primarily on fields that are difficult to grow spring crops, like really sandy uh, areas and kind of poor quality soils is where uh, fall rye usually is planted now. You bring up an interesting question here because we've got more people wanting to try cover crop seeds and apparently seed production was not that great last or this year and seeds getting expensive to buy and hard to find. Were yields in your area down on rice seed or not this year? What I can tell you is that is the drought has affected, you know, just a massive area Mm -hmm. and uh, normally, you know, things get wetter as you move further north in the prairies or further east and it's almost the opposite's happened in some cases. With rye, um, the few fields that I know of in my area, the yields were okay, but we were an area that did get a rain at, in sure. a critical time. So there was a there was a couple of things. First of all, you know the drought, but then last fall it was extremely dry and not a lot of rye was planted. I, I would say that it's likely that quality seed will be uh, hard to come by if you're looking for fall rye. 
Yeah. In the story we did back in 2012, we made the comment that you're farming in one of the harshest climates on the globe, near dead center on the North American continent. But snow accumulates for six months a year and melts maybe two weeks before you start seeding in the spring. That's pretty short. <laughs> yeah, well, it's for us, normal is a, is just the average of the extremes. There isn't really a normal. You know, we hit minus 50 and we hit plus 43 this year in the Celsius scales. So that's like minus 60 to plus 110. We, you know, we can have, uh, well, we have an extreme drought this year. And two years ago, we had probably the equivalent of all the rain we've seen this year in one 24-hour event. We do have th this challenge of a fairly tight production window. And uh, and so, you know, you manage things differently when it comes to fertility or um, planting or crop choices and that sort of thing. We, you know, most farmers have a plan B in mind at seeding time that if things get late, you switch crops because you don't have a lot of time to to make those uh adjustments when uh, when seeding's actually rolling you know you move to you know maybe barley or oats as you get late in the season it's not dissimilar to a lot of the northern plains but we are kind of in the very center where we seem to have the most extreme i'm in this weird situation where we've had seven hailstorms in the last 11 years and that's not normal like a yield map for my farm is totally useless because Nothing has been relative to what I've planned in the spring for seven of the last 11 years, and we had hail again this year. Um, and that's that's always a wild card now, it seems. So do you have a, a crop insurance bailout like for hail like we have in the States and Canada or not? Yeah, it's a, it's different. The, the crop insurance program is specifically run by the government, administered by the government. You don't have okay. private hail. Mm -hmm. So you don't have private crop insurance providers. But you do have hail um, that's provided through private insurance. But because we've had so much hail, they don't even really want to insure you. <laughs> they say, we don't want to sell you a policy um, by, by the cost of their premiums. But we do have hail insurance through the government's program as well. And they use a lot larger, larger risk area, which keeps the premiums reasonable. Mm -hmm. However, you know, this year, with even with the drought, we would have preferred a, a, a good crop than sure collecting it through hail. So up in your area, uh, zero till or no till, it's pretty much become conventional? You know, I, I was so lucky to be involved in this movement near the beginning. And it wasn't, it, it was because I was asked to be part of the Manitoba, North Dakota Zero Till Association when I was 23 or 24. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, these guys that had started that group in the early 80s, late 70s were kind of heroes of mine. And when I was asked to be like a farmer director, I was very honored. And I said, but I'm not a no-till farmer. And uh, they said, well, that doesn't matter because you will be. <laughs> and, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, that our farm quickly changed and, and it, you know, it hasn't gone back. And in Manitoba and Western Canada, you know, all the way to the Rockies, it's predominantly no-till, except when you get into the Red River Valley. Mm -hmm. And when you get into the heavy clays, the Ritter Valley, they, you know, they've adjusted. So they do a lot of direct seeding in the spring, but it is not an area where they can avoid tillage. They till the land a little bit in the fall. Right. Um, but it's, I, I, I know very few no-till farmers in, in the Red River Valley now. In our particular area, 
it's one pass seeding in my specific area it's usually one pass seeding with anhydrous ammonia as your fertility mm-hmm. and when i say one pass all the fertility is going on while you're seeding and we're fortunate because of the diverse crop choices we have i think that is kind of the key to making it work so well and having such a you know long term legacy here is uh, you're planting wheat into a low residue crop like canola and, and uh, you have these uh, cool season broadleafs and warm grasses and we could grow winter cereals that did fit into the system so having that diversification really helps make the system work as well yeah i've been over the years i'd been to a couple of the manitoba north dakota uh, meetings and i also remember one summer going up and spending a day with a farmer who pretty much started uh, zero till in manitoba and i can't think of his last name but it was jim he was one of the real pioneer Jim McCutcheon was, yes, was that's one who, that's of these, who it was. Yeah, he he was one of these people that I admired a great deal when I first started farming and felt, you know, that's why I was honored to to be asked to be part of the group. Right. And Jim did did farm in in the Red River Valley per se, but he did have soils that were lighter on the edges of of the valley there that were mm-hmm. more of a loam or sandy yeah. loam. And and he, you know, he was such an innovator in trying different openers and seeding systems um, when there was no infrastructure to support them other than his own initiative, you know? Right. Yeah, he was one of the original uh, creators of the Mandax Zero-Till Group, you know, and they went on to have such a a, a profound impact. You, you look at many of the other no-till associations, even in Australia, that they came to see how Mandac had been created and, mm-hmm. and then went back and, and kind of emulated that in other parts of the world. I, you know, I had uh, a friend working in Mongolia and he went into a state extension office and ag office in Mongolia and there was the Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Production Manual <laughs> translated into Russian. Right. And and I was in rural Ukraine a few years ago and I was in an office of a farm there and there was the Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Manual translated into Ukrainian. Yeah, that was really and, popular. Uh, yeah, well, it, and you kind of lose, you kind of take that for granted, and then you realize how that book, I think it was translated into eight or ten different languages, mm-hmm. um, you know, had an impact all over the world. So what happened to this group? I mean, everybody started zero tilling, and the, the group's kind of faded away, isn't it? Yeah, I can't tell you where it is exactly today. I know I was last involved with the group in the early 2000s, and there wasn't as many people coming to the conferences sure. because everybody was kind of doing it. Right. And uh, I know that they evolved into being a little more focused in the U.S. on, on cover crop uh, use and mm-hmm. that sort of uh, aspect of farming, right. and uh, and then I'm not sure where where it is today. Those original farmers that I knew that started the group, they were happy with how things evolved. Like uh, you know, you get to a point and then maybe it's not needed anymore, and so they were philosophical about well, it's run its course because look at how things have changed and. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, be interesting to see if there will be another revolution in agriculture that'll cause that much of a grassroots effort, you know, or create that much of a grassroots effort. I I don't think that will be the case. So uh, this year uh, where you are, 
would you really be in rough shape if, with the drought if you weren't zero tilling? It's hard to say because there's hardly anyone that tills anymore. Yeah. So there's not a lot of reference to what it could be like without. But, you know, suffice it to say, it, we are so much better off. Um, a couple of ways, you know, first of all, our crop came up relatively even. And mm -hmm. that's because, you know, we we didn't till. And if we had tilled in, with it being as dry as it was, then we never really had a rain until the third week of June. Um, our crop would have been, you know, very various stages of emergence. That being said, we still had uneven emergence because it was so dry. Mm -hmm. But um, that was one of the things that surprised me at the beginning of of the no-till <laughs> experience was uh, planting canola no-till worked so well, and most of us had the thought that it wouldn't because sure. it was such a tiny seed and a precarious plant that you would no-till your wheat and barley and peas and those sort of big seeded uh, robust crops. But the canola you'd have to cultivate to make sure this, you know, the seed bed was perfect and there wasn't a lot of residue for the canola to emerge through. Well, it turns out that if there was a crop that was great for no-till, it was canola because uh -huh. you could seed it close to the surface as the moisture would be there in a no-till situation and then the crop just took off from there. That was the initial hesitation, I think, for a lot of people thinking, well, we won't be able to no-till canola. And then that that just took off. And, and uh, if we had been cultivating our land and trying to establish canola in this really dry spring, it would have been very ugly. Yeah. So let's talk about where, where you were when you first started uh, no-tilling, walk through the changes in the equipment you had. You started out with, like, disc seeding units, didn't you? That was Jim McCutcheon had a famous quote that the one regret he had in his career was not making, not being able to make a disc seeder work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there'll be articles online of some of his history and he, sure. he built coulters to go in front of double discs and so on. We had, you know, the John Deere 750 drills. We rented sure. them out of the ag office and they worked quite well, but they're, you know, small for relation to our big farms here. Right. Flexicoil, Morris, and Borgo were the you know the three kind of prairie companies that were innovative and responded to this need faster than the other companies. And of course, ConservaPak was there at the beginning, and that's yeah. now the 1870 John Deere drill. The farmers that were using distrills at the beginning, you know, they worked well 80, 90 percent of the time. But then you had you had these times when they didn't work well at all. And uh, that was, uh, you, you can't afford that in, in farming. So the, this part of the world predominantly uses a tine seeding system. There's a few people that now have the new Borgo disc drills or the odd John Deere disc drills. But if you're going to see a new seeder sold in my part of the world, and this probably goes all the way to the Rocky Mountains, the, the, they predominantly will be uh, a tine seeding system, maybe a Borgo with a disc fertilizer injecting opener but the seed will be placed with a with a spike in the ground and have some sort of a paralink independent unit on each of the openers i bought a seed hawk early on when you could only buy them directly from the factory i mounted an anhydrous tank on the drill and that's actually still the system i use it's been modified a few times 
it's kind of indicative of how a lot of seed is put in the ground here. Either a dual knife system like a seed hawk or a seed master or even the John Deere or the Borgo system where you have a mid-row bander, sure. usually a disc system, and then a tying seed application. It's pretty hard to beat that system, you know, because they've been developed on the northern plains. So they're developed to plant canola, for instance, at like two pounds per acre. So you have a, let's say any of these units, you can buy them 80 to even 100 feet wide, yet they have the ability to meter a product at two pounds or three pounds per acre across the width of that unit. You know, it's pretty hard to beat that. We're a relatively small farm for the prairies. So my cedar's 35 feet wide. It's a little small for the farm as well, but it just works so well. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, it's been completely rebuilt and with the new products and so on. It works well. Uh, a new one is horrendously expensive, so I'm keeping the old one going for now. We usually put less than 200 hours on our tractor every year. That includes the grain cart and any land prep and harrowing and that sort of thing. Right. I can seed about 10 acres an hour, I think, maybe 12 acres an hour, everything included, like stopping and that sort of thing. This past couple of years, we've seeded fence row to fence row with it being dry, dry and that makes it so much easier. It, we're in pothole country for the most part, so in a yeah. wet year, you're driving around circles all the time. But <laughs> when you're planting fence row to fence row, that, that makes it the breeze. It's, it, but it also means that you're in a dry season, so right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a one thing or the other. So when you got potholes, will you go back in and seed those areas later or just ignore them? That's a good question. It depends on how you're feeling at the time, because <laughs> you, you will put the effort into seeding potholes, and the next day you get a big rain, and it's all underwater anyway. But of course, if it does work, those are your best yielding parts of the farm. So sure. it has to do with your anticipation of how wet the year is going to be. Yeah. Um, and you know we've been farming them long enough now that if you do farm them, they're, they generally do not stay flooded for a long period of time. But it is... Um, one of the quirks of farming in, in this part of the Northern Plains with potholes, because there's always a decision to be made as to what, how much rainfall you think you might have as to whether it's worth it or not. Right. And those darn potholes are their number one soil quality issue here. Now that we've addressed and sort of mitigated any form of soil erosion with no-till, the current soil quality issue is salinity and salt. Sure. You know, whether no-tills contributed to that a little bit or not, you know, you hear people say that, I don't know, because we've captured more moisture, there's more moisture than percolating to the surface, leaving the salts behind. But with potholes, you know, if you have a period of, of, of standing water, often over a course of so many years, you have the, a ring around that pothole is where the salts have come to the surface and been left behind. So now you have dead areas near these potholes that you can't do anything about. The soil quality issue because of salts is my main concern and headache right now. And there's not much I can do about it other than to make sure I try and keep uh, things growing as long as possible. Do you soil test on a regular basis? Yes, I, I do, although it's been interesting how it hasn't really changed <laughs> over the last number of years as to what I need to apply each year. It seems to be mm -hmm. pretty static, but I do soil test on a regular basis. And my farm is part of a, of a new uh, agronomy um, system where it was mapped entirely by an EM38 using RTK uh, 
guidance for elevation as well. Okay. So the farm is mapped in relation to its electroconductivity because, like I mentioned, our number one soil issue is salt. So I'm variable rating to the salt content. With the hailstorms and potholes and so on, yield maps aren't really all that relevant um, <laughs> because I, I just haven't been able to produce quality data because uh, sure. of these extremes. But the salt content, you know, it's relatively stable. That's what I kind of variable rate my nitrogen to is, is these salt maps that probably will not need to be updated for another 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found a really strong correlation between salt levels and specific elevation in the field as well. So I, I've just started doing this. Um, I'm having some problems getting my actual controller to variable rate properly. But the, the maps themselves, when, um, you know, when I have them loaded and I'm traveling in the field, you can obviously see salt levels because of residual vegetation or even color. They're very accurate. So I'm kind of pleased about that. We'll come back to Frank and Scott Day in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. For the latest no-till fact, we're going to go down to the Commer Research Farm at Alpha, Illinois, and look at how Marion has looked at the corn population studies over a five-year research program. He did 20 replications over five years with corn population. Did 28,000 kernels per acre, 32,000 and 36,000 kernels per acre, and the average yields for all two ranged between 205 and 206 bushels over the five years. So at his farm, the 28,000 population was the most profitable population to plant corn when uh, corn was valued at $5 a bushel and seed corn was $320 a bag, and each 1,000 extra kernels cost $4. So with corn valued at $5 per bushel, the 28,000 population was $11 per acre more profitable than the 32,000 population and $27 per acre more profitable with the 36,000 population. So sometimes less is more. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Scott Day as they discuss fall line capital and how Day got involved early on in the company's history. One of the things that we talked about in this story we did in uh, 2012 is how you had bought the second half of the home farm now in 89, and it was an organic operation. And I'm kind of fascinated. Let's talk through what you learned as you switched that organic farm to zero till. 
Well, that that was actually the farm I bought the same day I got to be an ag okay. rep or a county <laughs> agent. So that that was the beginning of of my ag career. And the farmer, you know, he's a neighbor. He's a guy I knew well, and he was an organic farmer, which at the time was a real exception. And he was a eccentric person. <laughs> he he smoked and drank, but he didn't apply pesticides because he didn't want to catch cancer. And, and then he ended up, you know, catching cancer. And so he, he was kind of retiring at the time. And so his farm had been always organically farmed with clover and cover crops and fish guts. Like he used things 35 years ago that people still talk as being innovative today. But when I bought the farm, there was essentially zero phosphorus there. And that was after he had applied fish guts and barrels and he would use manure, but he didn't have a lot of manure. And um, it was just kind of, to me, a, a very clear example of what happens if you can't replenish the nutrients that you're exporting off the land. Our farm, you know, had seen a gradual reduction in tillage. We had manure from our hogs a little bit, uh, like not enough to cover the whole farm, but certainly more than the adjacent land. And uh, that organic land, despite being farmed as, with the best methods available at the time, it, its organic matter was about a third less than what on our side was. Uh -huh. And the wow. phosphorus being almost zero was a huge <laughs> obstacle to overcome. I remember the lab at the time was run by the University of Manitoba and, and uh, contacted soil scientists there. And they said they hadn't seen a soil sample that low ever on the on the main clay loam soils that we have. The nitrogen level was actually excessive. Like he had been growing legumes and, and uh, uh, that sort of thing as his summer fall crops. So his nitrogen levels had built up to higher than anything we had on our farm. But the other nutrients had got so low that he was hardly producing any yield. You know, here we are over 30 years later, and there still is a marked difference in the production on that farm versus our home half. Looking back, I wish I'd set it up as, you know, more experiments because it was such a great cross-the-fence sort of opportunity. Right. But I just didn't have the resources or the time at the time. So this is Fall Line Capital, and you're working with Clay Mitchell, who was a no-tiller in Iowa for a number of years. And has spoken at our national no-tillage conference, and I think you and Clay were at our one of our conferences four or five years ago. Yeah, so that that this is all a result of uh, zero till. Is that in 2006, Clay and I were both speakers at at most of the no-till events in Australia. So it was mm -hmm. about a month where we traveled together, speaking at the various no-till farmer events across the country, and that's where we got to know each other and become friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, Clay and another friend had decided uh, a few years later to create a company that invested in agriculture in, in farmland and manage, and the focus would be managing the farmland with a soil conservation ethic. Um, and then from that came a, a focus to invest in technology. So when Clay and his friend came up with the idea, Clay gave me a call and asked me to be involved. So I've been one of the, the two original employees of the company. But like I said, I've had two careers ever since that one day back in 1989. <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready to give up farming with my dad. Uh, yeah. I love it here. And so I wasn't quite willing to give that up. And then, and I asked if there could be some sort of, uh, 
arrangement here where I'd lived in Canada in the summer and, and lived in in the United States where I had offices in the winter and and that's what we've done. Uh, mm-hmm. This is my 10th year of being back home on the farm and each winter my wife and I moved to to the head office in San Mateo, California and uh, and work out of that. And I find that living in Manitoba hasn't been a handicap at all because I live near Minot, which is a fairly large airport and I can get to any of our place, any of our farms or anywhere I need to be in the United States just as quick or even quicker and less expensive than if I'm living in San Francisco in the winter. So I, I've been kind of uh, amazed at how easy it has been for me to stay com- completely engaged in the company, but living in rural Manitoba. So let me get this straight. One of the detriments to this, what you're doing is your wife and yourself have to move out of this minus 60 degree winters <laughs> to come to the States, right? <laughs> I had no plans to be a kind of a snowbird, but this is the ultimate snowbird thing, right? Where you yeah, get to yeah. work and, and in the winter. So it, it hasn't, you know, like I said, it's been a great opportunity or, or and it's a real privilege to be able to come home and farm each summer as well. Yeah. Although it keeps me very busy and, also, you know, I, I mentioned my dad's 80 years old and he's getting younger every day, it seems. And that's a big key to me being able to, to continue to farm as well. He right. He's just fully engaged in farming and the markets and that sort of thing. So that's that's a there's a whole bunch of people that make the system work for me. And uh, that's you know, that's how I, I get to continue to do this. But, yeah, it is. It isn't. It isn't a hard winter. I'm a typical U.S. guy. I don't understand centigrade versus Fahrenheit. And I remember being in Regina one winter and got in a cab and it was really cold. And I said to the guy, man, it's so cold, but I can't convert to Celsius to Fahrenheit. And he said, well, you're in luck today. And I said, why? And he says, it's minus 30. And that's pretty much the same in both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's minus 40 where they're the same temperature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was born in 65, and I was that first generation that never grew up with Fahrenheit in Canada. Uh-huh. Okay. So I, I have a trouble, you know, my dad thinks in Fahrenheit, but I have trouble uh, identifying with that. I have to retrain myself every winter. Gosh, I guess I didn't realize that Canada was Fahrenheit at one time. Yeah, we switched in the mid-70s to metric. And uh-huh. at the time, the plan was to switch cold turkey. Yeah. Like uh, the the... The premier was, I think Trudeau was the premier and he said, or prime minister, and he said that we're just going to do it 100% cold turkey, and that that caused a lot of grief. So we kind of have a hybrid system like the British do now, uh, where I I only think in liters and kilometers and that sort of thing, but yeah. we think of acres. Right. And uh, we and you know feet and inches, sometimes meters and centimeters, others. So it's 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 uh, you know everybody adapts to whatever. But as far as Celsius goes, that's the one I know. At Fall Line Capital. Tell us what's going on in that area and how you how you're finding people to farm it, et cetera. When we last talked, I guess several years ago, the, our, our company was just getting started, and sure. our focus was buying farmland, uh, improving that farmland in whatever way was practical, and then renting it to local farmers with the emphasis on what we call asset preservation. But really, it's uh, preserving the topsoil. And so we we own farms in essentially three or four regions of the United States, the Pacific Northwest, the Upper Corn Belt, and then in the South. And in all areas, we have bought farms where 
we've put in tile drainage, put in irrigation systems, put in better grain handling facilities, introduced new crops. But we always work with local farmers and part of our, I think our, our unique attribute is the diligence we put into buying the property in the first place and then finding the right tenants to work with. And like I said, we have this focus on soil conservation. So that has to be um, at least uh, an important component of whichever tenant we want to work with. Now, in some cases, we're finding tenants that are interested in making the switch to reduce tillage, hmm. but aren't implementing it on their own farm. And so if they work with us, then they, they have to implement it on our farms. And uh, it, and it, it's been great seeing how this has evolved for, with some of our farmers that they've kind of made the adjustment working with us as opposed to coming in fully trained uh, on their own. The, the leases are almost always unique to the farm and the farmer. We, we have a template, but there's so much variability within a region, not, not, not to mention variability across the, the regions. And so we're pretty flexible when it comes to uh, how the farm is leased and, and the terms of that lease. Um, but we are always trying to be practical in, in what's possible or what's uh, effective in a local region. So in some cases, you know, cover crops are a requirement. In other areas like northern Montana, where a cover crop is pretty hard to establish, it's not a requirement on that farm, but then they're doing full no-till anyway, and mm -hmm. uh, that's getting us to the goal. But we also have farms that produce potatoes, and and you're not <laughs> that was one of the jokes that the when I was with the no till association there was some prize if we could figure out a way to no till potatoes but right. um uh in that that case we require a cover crop immediately after potato harvest and those sort of things i imagine many of your listeners would really find this work fascinating where you travel around looking at farms looking for ways to improve them and then having the ability to actually purchase the farms and implement those changes that's that's been great. It's been really uh, uh, interesting. You know, farmers are farmers no matter where you are. Like I said, I've worked in places outside of North America, and we all kind of deal with the same issues when it comes to inputs and prices and weather. And so it's it's a universal language farming. And uh, um, in fact, I'm coming from just outside the U.S. doesn't seem to have had much of a handicap when it comes to visiting and talking with farmers. One of the concerns we hear these days is about firms like you or other people buying up land and squeezing farmers out of the market. I mean, one of the big concerns right now is Bill Gates has got so much land, et cetera. What's he doing in this business? You're probably kind of bidding against some local farmers, but then at the same time, you're giving them new ideas to farm. How's that working out? I think we're a little bit different with our focus sure. on long-term ownership and uh, soil conservation and farm development. So, you know, I, I we obviously know about Bill Gates's group and they are buying yeah. kind of ready off the shelf farms and uh, he has his own reasons for investment and, and diversification. We are generally, you know, we're, we're, we're very unlikely we're gonna be setting the market in any area. Like okay. it's, it's most likely the neighbors are gonna see more value in a, in a perfect farm. Mm -hmm. But we're buying land, for the most part, it, it's gonna require some further investment to make it top production. And we're also in areas where farms are available that many of the local people uh, don't have the capacity to purchase, like a big track of land that was once part of a family operation and now, sure. you know, actually is appreciated to the value that 
um, not a lot of local people could purchase. So we're not in direct competition for a lot of local buyers that you would see with some of the more prominent or visible land investments like you've mentioned. Most of our acquisitions lately have come from within our network, like our tenants that want us to per- buy a purchase or purchase a piece of land that then they can farm. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually where some of our expansion is. We want to be in a community for a long time. We have a fund that has a very long time frame associated with it. If you're looking at this from a long-term perspective, we want the whole region to succeed because then that will impact land values as well. So we've had field days on our farms to we're wanting to promote some new ideas and hopefully add more value to the whole community. You know, fall line by the, these farms, but actually we do a lot of uh, activity in technology investment. That, that's a big part of what I do for the company now. I was had this role of agronomist for the company, but I also am involved with helping the team that works on technology investments. And that's been fascinating, and that's actually growing as a component of our operation. We've invested in companies that are developing mRNA technology for pest control. Now, they are also able to make vaccines, and this has been an incredible year and a half with them and and their discovery of of that. Um, But the promise and the potential of this technology for impacting agriculture is incredible, just as it is for human health. We're part of companies that are creating new ways to develop new crops or, or new varieties that are exceptionally precise and, and efficient. Um, and that's that's really interesting as well. Uh, we're invested in companies that are uh, creating new protocols for communication within equipment. That's fascinating. We're involved with a company that's based in Canada that has created a pathway optimization software for farmers. And it also will take into consideration elevation. So if you send them a map or uh, details of a field, they'll send you the direction you can go to maximize the efficiency of your equipment, which sounds simple, but it is incredibly complicated when you start to put a few obstacles there. And then they expect to be able to layer on topography so that you could not only create pathways that are most efficient for the general direction, but also best suited to reduce soil erosion in relation to water transporting on on the soil surface. Well, the fact we have farms and the fact we're farmers really helps us when it comes to ag technology investing, because most of the people that do investment in ag technology that have the resources to do that don't have that connection directly to a farm or a farmer, and we're able to to provide all that to to our partners. So I'm very... Very excited about the future of agriculture. Yeah, and, that's great. Uh, and and I feel very privileged to be where I am. Uh, and I think it's a great career. And I encourage anybody that has an inkling to have a career in agriculture to be sure to go for yeah. it. A hot area right now is carbon sequestration and carbon credits. Are you going to get involved with this? It definitely is a hot topic. And, you know, it's definitely something we've seen a lot on the tech investing side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Various companies that think that they're going to, you know, be the the tool that is used to measure the soil carbon or the protocol that's used to monitor it. Sure. And uh, this is all good. Like, this is probably good for the whole industry. And 
we're at this point we haven't done anything specifically because this is still kind of in its infancy as they're sorting things out right and as uh and you know the going back to this congress that, that was based out of switzerland a few weeks ago a number of the of the presentations in the session i was involved with talked about the benefits of no-till in south africa and in north africa as far as water retention better yields but they said we didn't see much impact on soil carbon and <laughs> and and that was just kind of an off-the-cuff statement and this is something i've seen time and time again and even on my own farm long-term no-till but the nudge in the value of the organic matter has been very very hard to track so right. there's that side of it as well where you're trying to uh, make sure that we're not signing up to something that we can't deliver or that can't be measured properly. We're going to do what we're going to do as far as protecting the soil, soil cover, reducing tillage, and uh, and then if this carbon market becomes something that's very tangible and secure, then we we expect that we're in a very good position to take advantage of that. Right. But at this point, we haven't done anything specifically in regards to that. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. A question from uh, readers recently came up regarding the GMO situation and whether we'll continue to see more GMO hybrids and varieties in the future. And while GMO corn, soybeans, and cotton have caught on rapidly with North American no-tillers, I expect to see still more specialized genetic traits incorporated into many more crops in the future. This is particularly true in areas of the world where the GMO technology has not yet been accepted by farmers, governments, or environmental and consumer groups. The use of biotech-created seeds will continue to grow around the world as more countries get on board and overcome their food safety and environmental fears. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Scott Day for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at mpaulkner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Faulkner. Thank you for listening.